On the new episode of the Well Endowed Podcast, the team speaks with Daryl Davis, an accomplished musician and author of Clandestine Relationships. That's K-L-A-N, the Stein Relationships. In Daryl's pursuit to discover how anyone could hate him without knowing him, Daryl built relationships with the Ku Klux Klan, and some of the members have come to know Daryl and have since changed their worldview and left the clan. And so they speak to him about that. And Daryl talks to them about his experience and what friendship really means to him. Sounds like a pretty provocative and pretty interesting episode for the Well Endowed Podcast. So you should definitely check them out at thewellendowedpodcast.com. This episode of Modern Manhood is also brought to you by Park Power, provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is also owned by Chris Kososki, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. And I know this because I know Chris, and he's always a well-dressed man. He's always wearing little bow ties. But beyond the bow ties, he's actually an amazing man who has helped out the community in Short Park a lot. So I definitely not only recommend him, but I recommend his service. So if you're in the Edmonton area, um, you can definitely check out Park Power. It's at parkpower.ca. Current community partners of Park Power include Boys and Girls Club of Strathcona County, the Altview Foundation, uh, Festival Place, uh, Muscular Dystrophy Canada, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and Saffron Centre. They've all been supported by Park Power because I know Chris is a guy who cares. So learn more about Park Power. Go to parkpower.ca. Welcome back to another episode of Modern Manhood, presented by Next Gen Men, an exploration of modern masculinity and the way it shapes us in the modern world. I'm your host, Norman Vijegas. Modern Manhood is part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, and is supported and helped out by the amazing people over at Next Gen Men, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing healthy masculinity uh, with youth programs and equity leaders and things like Wolfpack. They're all over the place. You can definitely check them out at nextgenmen.ca. And we're also supported by your generous Patreons who support us and help run NextGenMen. And we consider them like family. So everybody who contributed to NextGenMen's Patreon page, thank you, thank you very much. If you want to be a Patreon and get a shout-out here, go to patreon.com slash nextgenmen. One day I was speaking to a bunch of youth, and in conversation, a young woman lamented the fact that she had to make sure she was safe every time she went out to the streets by herself at night. And she was, let's say, 17 years old, maybe a little bit younger, 16 years old. It was a hassle, but it was her life. That's how she said. And a young man around 12 years old asked almost bewilderedly, why she had to do that. It's not the same as what you would do, she said. You could just walk out, no problem. It's not the same for me. It's a different life. And thus that young lady has experienced the sentence, I'm afraid of men. 
It's a sentence that can be provocative for a lot of people, especially men, and for some, maybe something to get defensive about. I'm not sure. But it is a reality for a lot of marginalized populations, especially women. And this is the whole theory of the book by award-winning Canadian artist Vivek Shreya, that men in her life had made her weary, queasy, disturbed, aware, unsafe, and scared. In part, and maybe complicated as well, that Vivek embodied masculinity before because she is a trans woman. Vivek Shreya is an award-winning artist who has published many books before, but her newest book, titled I'm Afraid of Men, explores how masculinity was imposed on her as a boy and continues to haunt her as a girl, and how we might reimagine gender for the 21st century. Not only that, she is a person who is my age and was raised in Edmonton. So all these things were really interesting and very curious, and this is why I wanted to talk to her. And I was lucky to do just that, just before she spoke at LitFest, and before she interviewed Tegan and Sarah at McEwen University. It's interesting because uh, when I was reading your book, I found a lot of myself in your book, but I also found a lot of um, other like like things that I didn't really un- like didn't really know about other things as well. Um, the thing that I connected was one was a part that you mentioned that was about yourself and about someone else. So the one about someone else that I was like, wow, I totally get that one was about your friend, um, your friend that wanted to uh, that that was was a brown was a brown kid right that wanted to oh, be white. yeah yeah and i'm i'm an immigrant myself and i when i when i read that i was like yeah <laughs> that was that that was a tough thing for me because i'm trying to reclaim my own identity as a, as a latino as well um so i guess that's like did you go through that same kind of phase as well too when you were young yeah i mean my parents are immigrants so i had all kinds of internalized um, racism, which, you know, ebbed and flowed. Like, I think, you know, in my childhood, I was, like, very proud of my culture. Um, I think that when you layer two kinds of oppressions on each other, so being queer, being gender nonconforming, and then brownness, it's like you're too alien. (laughs) Like, already being brown... Um, being racialized in this city is like at least when I was growing up was like a big deal and it already set you apart but then you throw in you know being gender nonconforming or just like you know not being the typical manly guy and it was like too much so for me it I think race on its own was this one thing but I think it was coupling it with everything else that made it hard yeah no I would imagine and you can and you can definitely see it on this book um, I'm afraid of men and I I, I read through this. I, I literally read through this for like a day, and I just like flipped through it, and I started writing down. Yeah, because there was a lot of things that I, I really connected with. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I thought it was, I, I was really I noted the part uh, that you talked about with Nick, and right. Nick was the one that to me was where the book really started to like not started, just added a lot of momentum to it. Thanks. That's my favorite part of the book. <laughs> it is my favorite part of the book too. This one and the one about uh, about Manpreet was the one that also connected, right. connected yeah. with too. Um, tell me when you wrote about Nick. Was that was that a hard thing to do? Yeah. So for me, I think 
one of the things I've been talking about about this book is the ways in which, like, I think when men hear the title I'm Afraid of Men, they assume that what the project is about, some sort of, like, man-bashing, man-hating thing. Right. Which, you know, to me is really interesting, right? It's like you articulate fear and suddenly the oppressor thinks that you're hating on them. I know. It's like, that actually is not very logical. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, this isn't a logical conversation or responded Absolutely. to with a lot Absolutely. of logic. Um, so for me, I felt like the core of this book is the tension of fearing men and also desiring men. That both of those things are true for me. And so having a love story at the crux of I'm Afraid of Men... A, felt um, vital to talk about that tension, but also as a writer, I was hoping it would be a bit of a plot twist. Yeah. You know, I was hoping that it was the kind of thing that you don't expect as a reader when you read this book, that you're not expecting this, like, epic love story, you know? So, I mean, I'm calling it epic because, you know, <laughs> whether or not it actually read as epic is another thing. So, yeah, I mean, so for me, I always knew that I wanted that to be part of the conversation because the relationship with Nick did actually change a lot of my feelings about masculinity. In a lot of ways, he behaved in ways that I'd never had a man treat uh, me or act. So I think it was also useful in showing a different model and that I've experienced a different model. Uh, but simultaneously, that model, like Nick still fucks up. And for me, that felt also really interesting is to be like the ways in which I was so attached to him being an exception and thinking about how that's kind of been the case with so many men in my life is want imagining that they were somehow better or the exception. And so one of the things I get to with Nick is like, what if I wasn't attached to him being an exception? What if I wasn't attached to him being better? How would I see him then? Yes. Yeah. And that's the, I feel the crux of the, of the book in, in general is this idea of the good guy. Right. And the idea of, um, how do we eliminate that and just kind of muddle into this gray territory of not good and bad, but just just being a human almost, just being this flawed human um, that will do the best they can, but will, what you like you said, they fuck up. Um, how do you... <laughs> How do you think guys can do this? How do you think, or even just people in general, like muddle into this gray area? Well, I mean, to be clear, I'm not advocating for a sort of, you know, we all make mistakes uh, because a lot of like horrible violence happens uh, by men. But I think for me, what I think is dangerous is, you know, one of the things I really paid attention to while I was writing this book is like the conversations around me too. So many of them were like, not him too, not like, not this man. I thought he was one of the good ones. And thinking about the ways in which our expectations of men actually set everyone up for failure. It sets up men for failure and it also sets up women, women for failure and everyone else. And so um, for me, what I'm advocating for is like culturally, can we try and let go of terms like good and bad as descriptors for other people and try to narrow down? Because I think for me, my experience of being a man, I too struggled with being a good man. And this is what I talk about. I was like, I really wanted to be a good man. And, but it's so hard to pinpoint what that is. It's hard to know what that is. Like, what does it take to be a good guy? Um, And so I think that what's more useful is trying to imagine new kinds of values 
um, and new kinds of standards that are more specific. So the example that I give in the book is like, how about a man that communicates? Mm-hmm. You know, so if there's a way for us to imagine masculinities where the standards are more quantifiable and more measurable, um, I think that that would be a way for us to get a bit out of this trap of repeatedly thinking that men are are exceptions right right no and that's because no one's an exception right no, like that's exactly. the thing like it's like with white people right like yeah. there's no such thing as a good white person right like <laughs> white people are white people <laughs> yeah know? no and that and i think a, a lot of guys especially guys that are that are wanting to be um you know good people or good or good men are stuck into this kind of binary of right like the good totally. and the bad and as soon as you do something wrong you're a bad you yeah know? exactly and then i love what you mentioned specifically about nick uh, is that when you kind of release that notion of good and bad, it gave you um, a little bit of um, freedom to not. It was it was kind of a freedom of both sides. Totally, like, it was very much like an empowerment tool as well. Totally. Well, I mean, I realized that by putting Nick on a pedestal, I again was hurting both of us. It sort of set him up inevitably to fail one way or another. Because that's what happens. And it also took away my agency, right? Like, because it meant that I was... Like, it sort of created a victim narrative out of me. And I didn't... I felt... I felt like I deserved more than that. And by sort of refusing to see Nick Note as an exception anymore, it sort of gave my agency back to me. Because then it, it gave me a choice. I could either stay in this relationship or not. And I could also continue to see myself as a victim of another bad man or I could paint a more nuanced picture for myself right right no that those are those are great great parts and I want to go back to this good guy thing but um, I do uh, well you're back in Edmonton right here I am yeah. <laughs> the scene of the crime <laughs> that's that's that was a question of mine too because the last time I saw you you were doing a book reading and you mentioned um, a little bit of the trauma that happened in Edmonton. Is it hard to come back to Edmonton? Yeah, I mean, tomorrow apparently my parents are coming to the reading. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, ooh, just don't cry. Um, yeah, I mean, truthfully, it's not an easy city for me to visit. I would imagine. I think that, I think it, when you've lived in a city for a very long time, regardless of trauma, um, everything becomes haunted in a way. Like, Everything, like, memories get stored in, like, roads and in the superstore behind us and, you know, the hotel that my dad used to work over there, right? Like, you, memories just, they haunt you. And um, for me, the haunting is not a good one because so often my experience in Edmonton was uh, one of trying to get out or and of hardship. So um, there's something meaningful though about bringing this book here um and kind of empowering like i i keep thinking about like wow vivek like i'm I'm, like thinking about a younger self and i'm like if i could tell you that like 20 years from now you're going to be back in edmonton and you're going to talk about the things that happened to you and you're going to take those experiences as a way to try to make better experiences for other people who might have similar issues as you or different. Um, like I feel very fortunate and I feel very like grateful. I'm still here, still kicking yeah, around. Still and cool. yeah, it, it feels, yeah, there's something about it that feels beautiful to be able to come back to the same city and um, share this particular project. Yeah. And I think this partic- particular project 
has gotten you um, a lot of. Uh, it, it was a highlight on this book, basically specifically. Um, do you? What is it about this book? Because you've written other books that are, have been, you know, talking about race, or you talking about your own about being trans. Um, but this specific book, I feel, and then you correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like um, this has caught a lot of people's attention. Is mm-hmm. that true? Is that? Oh, absolutely. Feel? I mean, I, I mean, I think a big part of that, to be blunt, is you know there's definitely a bigger machine behind this project. You know, it's published by a major press in Canada, Penguin Canada. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to take away from people (laughs) connecting to the project. I think that's a big part of it. But, you know, for the book to reach you, for it to get in your hands, it needs to be visible. You need to be able to see it. And as someone whose career has, like, spanned, like, 16 years from independent to now major, like, I know what it means to be with, like... Uh, to self-publish and sit at like literary like uh, zine fairs like trying to get someone to sell a book and then closing up my box of books and being like well I sold four I made back the hundred dollar you know table fee <laughs> yeah. you know so and like again uh, that's not to say that maybe this book doesn't have more of uh, you know uh, commercial appeal or any of these things or that it's resonating I, I'm, I'm not taking it, trying to take away from the quality of the book but I think as someone who's also a business person in, in the industry. Um, There's something else kind of like... Right yeah, there. yeah. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to dismiss what it means to have like a, totally a big fair. push. That's totally know. fair. That's totally fair. Um, the reason why I ask is because I feel like... Sorry, I know that there was a, one, this, it wasn't the sexy answer you're looking ah, for. No, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it's the real answer. That's all that matters. Um, the, there is a teaching guide, which I have here yeah. as well, which is uh, really interesting and really cool to to know that there is, um, you know, someone wanting to learn from this book. Um, Were you, I'm assuming that you had a a big hand in this teaching guide? I don't want to say I had a big hand. So actually what happened is um, last, two years ago, I put out a children's book called The Boy in the Bindi. And it's about a boy who has a fascination with his mom's bindi. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a children's book. And at the time, I ended up working with... um, a grade school teacher in Calgary to put together a teaching guide because she is um, incredible. She's also a parent and I just really like value her perspective. And so when it came to this book, um, Penguin was like, you know, we'd love to put together a teaching guide. And so I reached out to Robin, the same person, um, Robin Phillips. And I was like, would you be interested? And she's like, absolutely. So she, she took on this project. I mean, she certainly consulted with me in terms of like, Mm -hmm. what were the gaps and stuff, but Mm -hmm. she did an incredible job in terms of like hitting a lot of the notes in the book specifically with this with the teaching guide there is a specific area where it says understanding the fear is not a monolithic emotion and this is something i I truly truly connect with right um just because fear you know people put fear into kind of buckets and say this is one type of fear totally type of fear and specifically in your book without even just like looking at pages it's i'm afraid of men and men are afraid of me and that Plot is, twist. <laughs> it is it, trying to hold those two truths together uh, can be a little tough. And it's does it feel? But they're inseparable. Yes, absolutely. They're inseparable. Does it feel lonely sometimes in that in that space? Ooh, <laughs> we're getting real now. Yeah. <laughs> um, lonely? No, I mean I'm really lucky. Like that's the thing is like I had someone else read the book and they were like, you know. 
it just seemed like such a lonely experience. And the truth is, like, I'm very loved. Like, I'm very, very loved. And I think sometimes we have this idea that if someone experiences oppression, that they don't have community. I, I mean, I don't have buckets of people around me, right. but like, I have, like, my parents are very supportive of me. You know, my brother and I are in a band called Too Attached. We just played a show here last yeah. week, opening for Tanya Sigiak. Yeah. And he's super supportive of me. I have, like, a core group of people that, like, love me. So any of the experiences I've been through, I mean, truthfully, that's why I've lived. Like, I don't want to sound dramatic, but I think the thing that's kept me alive is the fact that I've always had a lot of love in my life. So um, I think what's lonely sometimes is trying to articulate something you don't have words for. And I think I'm very lucky now as a 37-year-old to be like, blah, 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 this was my experience. But what was lonely was growing up in a city during a time where we didn't use language like homophobia. We didn't use language like gender nonconforming. We didn't use language like queer. It's not to say these words didn't exist, but those words weren't used. And so what that means is, is that when I asked for support, it was like, oh, well, everyone gets picked on. But getting picked on because you have acne or big glasses, which I also had, is very different than getting picked on because of what your perceived gender is or your sexuality is getting picked on because for me getting picked on by about my glasses never made me want to kill myself right so I think for me the loneliness is less about holding truths it's about not being able to articulate those truths in words and not having language and then also not having those truths heard and at this point I get to write a book about it (laughs) so you know I'm I'm the least lonely moment of my life (laughs) well that's good that's good no because I I, that's when I was reading this book especially during the end when you were talking about um you know women that were not your allies or people who were queer that were not your allies sure um I, I felt I really did and I felt like oh, I was like oh man this must feel really like isolated well I mean I think you know to to branch out in terms of loneliness I think some of the hardest things about being a marginalized person is the ways that we are sometimes hardest on each other yeah. I think when we experience racism or homophobia we end up internalizing it and then we take it out within each other in our community so like whether it's like queer people or trans people or women and same thing with women right it's like you experience misogyny and so you internalize it and so what what do you do you don't take it out on men you take it out on another girl right and i as a trans girl as someone who doesn't even get read as feminine like women are constantly like girl you need to get your nails fixed and like at first i was like oh this is a nice this is they're supporting me but when women repeatedly do that to you you realize what's happening is that they're correcting you they're telling you that you're not if you want to be seen as a girl you need to shape up and you know meet a certain expectation and a certain standard so yeah to talk about loneliness i think being part of a marginalized community the loneliness is like the ways that we don't know always how to support each other and for me so much of my work is trying to find ways to build community with my own people yeah absolutely and which you're doing yeah Yeah. you know what (laughs) that's and that's why I really connect this book because I feel like this is not just uh, you trying to say, well, this is just my experience, but this is something you're like, I want to connect with other different totally, as well. Totally. And not only that, I feel I, I really connect to it in the sense that you're not only one saying like this happened here, this happened here to me, but I did stuff too. Totally. The yeah. Manpreet story. Yeah, the Manpreet story. <laughs> and it's that... Again, another part where I connected a lot. Another part where when I was younger, I, you know, and I am definitely male identifying. And to say that I wanted to kiss a girl was absolutely a thing that I wanted of to course, do. Of course, sure. Yeah. yeah. And 
but to try to take that agency to do that is is uh, like I, I could see myself wanting to do that when I was younger. Um, yeah, was it hard to like write that, or what was your thoughts around that? I mean, I have a lot of shame around that story, but for me, it was like I think that this book only works if we're all part of the conversation. If I, it's not a finger pointing book, yeah. right? Like I'm not really interested in just being like men are bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's boring it, and it's easy. Yeah. Right. So for me, the more complicated story is talking about how we're all complicit in the conversation of masculinity, men, women, trans people, queer people, racialized people. Like we're all part of that equation and that includes me. And so the men story, you know, talking about being in grade two and imagining like kind of pushing myself onto this girl to make her kiss me and knowing that she was weak and that she perceivedly, like I perceived her as weak and she was kind of a loner and like knowing that that would make her um, an easy target for me. Like it disturbs me that at such a, so I share that story a to show that even as someone who was like made fun of for being too feminine and girly, I was still, I still had these very violent ideas and entitled ideas around women's bodies. Where was that coming from at grade two? Where was I learning that at grade two? And the other reason why I show it is to talk about how, you know, I think that these conversations do need to happen at a younger age because of the fact that like I was so young, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you ask yourself in the book as well, I'm kind of like a, a little kind of an internal worry. Is that still in me? Exactly. Is yeah. there a part of me that still feels entitled to women's bodies in that way? Right. right. Like that it could just be unlocked. And so, yeah, it was, it, it was, it's, it's, it's a part of the book that felt so important to hold myself accountable, but it's also deeply embarrassing, right? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's extremely shameful to be like, there I was in grade two. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, thankfully nothing happened. Yeah. Like thankfully it never it never reached where it could have gone. But I think that's what, that's what's powerful of it is that you mentioned that it, yeah, nothing happened, but it's still something that you thought totally. And it's still something that you wanted to do. Um, cause most people, I don't want to say most people, but some people would say, well, that it didn't happen. So nothing happened. We're all good. So the action was the bad thing, but you were saying the thought is the bad. Thing. Well, I mean, I think that thoughts are the most important, like, thoughts are where the work needs to happen because I think it's exactly what you're saying. Most people don't think that they're misogynist. Most people don't think they're racist. Most people don't think they're homophobic because they're thinking about their actions. They're like, I haven't called anyone fag today. I haven't pushed anyone down the hall. So I'm a good person. It doesn't matter what's going on in here. But the thing is thoughts turn into actions, thoughts turn into words. And so for me, you know, it's so important that when you are having a thought that you're able to take the time to think about why you're having that thought. Like, you know, for me, the back of the book saying men are afraid of me, it's really about completing the cycle. You hear a title like I'm afraid of men and you're like, oh, you're afraid of men. Like it's very vulnerable um, and almost like pitying, right? It's like, oh, that's too bad. But I'm like, I don't fear men because of this random, I just woke up one morning. I didn't wake up like this, right? I, I, I fear men because men have seen me and not challenged what was happening here. They weren't challenging their thoughts. They saw someone that was different. And instead of being like, hmm, why am I uncomfortable? Why does this person bother me? They just acted out. So if men were to take that extra step, 
of sitting with their discomfort and challenging their thoughts, that would be the best thing possible. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But I think thoughts are everything. Right. And I want to go through that thread as well, because you mentioned two, um, two observations about masculinity that I, I really was like, Ooh, I never thought about. Actually, I, one of them I thought about one I didn't thought think about your, you said consumption is a key to masculinity. Um, and I was like, this is interesting. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more on this? Well, I think one of the things I realized in my late teens was that part... So when you're being picked on um, as a child, you don't know why that's happening. Especially if you don't know what the word gay lord means. Yeah. Or if you... Like, I grew up in an immigrant home. Like, nobody was walking around saying faggot. Like, I didn't know what that meant. And who are you going to ask, what does faggot mean? Like, where are you going to go? It's not Google. Like, there's yeah, no internet. there's no internet. Yeah. Right? So, I'm getting called language that I've never heard of before. And so, a lot of my work in my late teens is trying to figure out what is it about me that is making people uncomfortable? What is it about me that's causing this kind of language? And one of the things I realized that it's my body type. It's my shape. The fact that I'm skinny and tall makes me read as feminine. And so I'm like, I start thinking, okay, I need to gain weight. And so, you know, consumption, eating food becomes part of my practice to grow into a man. I'm like downing chicken breasts. I'm downing the protein shakes. I'm like at the gym regularly because the only way that I'm going to survive in this body is if I change it. Simultaneously, I learn in gay community that gay people have also internalized their their misogyny and their um, their homophobia and so if you're skinny and gay nobody's attracted to you within gay community because you're too girly so I realize that if I wanted to keep myself safe from straight men and attractive to gay men I would just need to be bigger and so consumption became the key to masculinity for me by eating more i gained safety and i gained desirability true true all true. in one go <laughs> <laughs> that's and, and when i read that i was like wow this is an interesting thought because i i totally get that when when you're explaining it now like oh yeah that totally makes sense you know you're trying to gain muscle or you're trying to gain stature or yeah and just like even taking up space right yeah and it's just like the more space you take up the more man- manly you're seen yeah. but like the thing that I talk about towards the end of the book is like I wish that I had thought about when I was a man and being trained to take up more space I wish that I had thought more about whose space am I taking up yes right like Absolutely. I mean like it's great that we have terms like manspreading <laughs> you know because often that speaks to the ways that like men are taking up space but they're often taking up space of other like women and like racialized people yeah yeah absolutely it's not usually our space that we take up. exactly yeah and um and it's this is an interesting juxtaposition between that uh observation and your observation about kind of the rejection of color or the rejection of brightness or the rejection i mean of, look at you i know <laughs> i'm just i'm feeling it right now <laughs> and it's funny because i saw a picture of uh, a picture of the Edmonton Oilers just recently, and it, they were just like traveling in, in Germany. And, and they're all in gray and black. and Yes, yeah. gray and blue and black, and that's it. And I was like, wow, this is really I'm in black today, but I'm trying to match the weather. It's, it's less about <laughs> aesthetic. It's more of a mood. I exactly. <laughs> so why, why is it, do you think, that, that we're trying to, guys are trying to take up space, but also not be seen as much? Oh, that's so interesting. I think it like when it comes to color, it's less about not wanting to be seen and more about the ways that color is gendered in our culture. So like, 
you know, my mom will always tell this story about how when I was born, uh, when my she was pregnant with me, um, there was a woman in our community who had a daughter. And so she literally placed, like, she put her daughter in all pink and then put her in my crib to make sure that my mom would get a daughter just from osmosis. It was a weird thing because the girl was wearing pink. But anyways, this is all to say that, like, in our culture, like colors are so gendered so I don't think that it's like men are are wearing col- like blue and gray because they want to be invisible I think it's just that from the day you're born blue is for the gr- blue is for boys pink is for girls and any shade in that region of pink magenta this book is girly and anything in the other region that has like basically no color is masculine right, right? so right. no no that totally makes sense it was so weird too going to India like when I was still male and just like seeing color everywhere, like men wearing like bright pink, yeah. like, like pants. And then I, I was like, awesome. And so I started like, I bought all the, like, I bought like this fuchsia scarf and then I got back to Toronto and I like was wearing it on the streetcar and I was like, oh, right. Like, it's like yeah. literally <laughs> just like, it's like Pleasantville in here. Like all the color has been sucked out. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. I, and that, and it's it's a good point that you made that that masculinity as well um, shapes and moves in different cultures and different areas and different different places. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's very culturally specific. Our ideas of gender are are very informed by culture and geography. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's a, as a Latin American. Exactly. I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, and you know, I, go, I when I go back to Chile or when I go see so much color. So much color, so much flair, so much like liveliness. And exactly. Then, and then you come back here. And you're it's like, like it's great. Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> is a metaphor for masculinity, right? Yeah, now. I know. I wish there was <laughs> you'll see a picture of it, I'm sure. <laughs> um, the last kind of questions that I wanted to ask you was um, I know you mentioned in an interview you said you wanted to re- reject the term toxic masculinity because it was uh, it's bec- it was becoming not useful anymore. Um, can Sorry. You sp- oh, no, that's <laughs> time. It's all good. Um, no, I'm apologizing to you because I, I'm sure that that's a phrase that you probably use. No, but I agree with you, and I mm. think that that's I I think sometimes a lot of, we use a lot of terms that were rooted in sociology in the in the massive media or massive society and sometimes they get kind of um, not unused or kind of like overused, overused, abused, almost like they, they become terms that where people just are now defensive about it. They don't even like engage in it anymore. Um, So what, what do you think that we can replace this with or or is do we need to replace it? Because I know you talked about misogyny specifically in your book, and you mentioned a lot about misogyny. Is that, <laughs> that paragraph. <laughs> yeah, and I thought that paragraph was great because it oh, was like all thank you. Like, I was like, this is when I'm going to lose the readers because like, I feel like <laughs> nobody wants to see the word misogyny. <laughs> oh, I thought it was so useful because uh, you're, you're naming everything that was, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that's misogyny. I guess that's misogyny. That's misogyny. And maybe it's because I'm a person that is involved in talking, like thinking and talking about gender, but... I don't know. I find it really useful. So, Oh, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, so I tend to pay attention to language a lot. I'm a writer. That's my job. Yeah. And anytime something becomes culturally popular, 
or like almost like a buzzword, I tend to feel a little bit suspicious. Like, what are the mechanisms here? Why is this becoming popular? And I also, as someone who's witnessed the ways that certain what words have replaced other words. So, I mean, I was really excited when I saw the word homophobia on the cover of People magazine, you know, ten, I want to say eight years ago. Right. To me, I was like, wow, homophobia. Like, people are having this conversation. But then this strange thing happened called bullying, where suddenly this new word, bullying, happened. And now everything is bullying. So homophobia got watered down, racism getting picked on because you have big glasses like all of that's bullying but the problem when you neutralize language the specificity of language is that then you actually can't provide care or support everyone gets bullied that's what happens so there's no way to actually talk or address specific issues anymore and I've seen the same trend with the word diversity right like now the word diversity gets used and it's supposed to mean a range of things but like nobody wants to say race you know and so similarly toxic masculinity for me what I see happening with that phrase is when people hear the word toxic masculinity like you said they kind of shut off but I also feel like it's it's a term that allows men to disengage with the conversation Mm -hmm. because they're like that's not me I'm not a toxic man nobody runs around being like oh I'm a toxic man (laughs) so they hear the phrase toxic masculinity they're like that's not me and so for me I'm like let's just call it masculinity and let's address the issues about masculinity as opposed to suggesting there's a good masculinity. Because again, I think it's doing exactly That's what the exactly book is talking it. about. Right. That there's a good masculinity and there's a bad masculinity as opposed to a singular ma- well not a singular masculinity, but a masculinity that has, that's multifaceted, right? I don't think that, like, no more bi- no more binaries. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% with you. I'm 100% with you. And you're absolutely right. When the term toxic masculinity comes out, a lot of people will just say, well, what is it? What's what does non-toxic it masculinity? Well, because when you think of toxic, like, I imagine, like, the poison sky yeah. with a skull, <laughs> and then you imagine, like, a man, and it's like... This <laughs> person's not going to give a disease. Yeah, it's, just, it's exactly. It's like, it doesn't make sense, you know? I totally agree with you i totally agree with you uh this was fantastic um i have one last question for you and this is a question i always ask in modern manhood um is there a piece of advice that you would want to give out to other guys i mean you wrote a whole book about it so pretty much um, um sure but is there anything that kind of you want to stick out and you want to say well first my advice for you is like the next time i see you i want you in like a very bright shirt oh yeah as like a form of like activism you know you what know? that's a good point okay i'm gonna make that happen, make that happen. <laughs> And then um, my other advice is I think we're in an interesting cultural moment where I feel like a lot of men feel like men are under attack or masculinity is under attack. And, and this includes a lot of like sensitive men, right? Like I've heard people who I think are like woke, sensitive men feel very quote unquote triggered by a lot of the conversations that have been happening very publicly in the past year or two with around me too. And I think that the, the most important thing that, boys can do at young boys and men is to sit with that defensiveness to sit with that feeling as opposed to like tuning out and lashing out or you know getting publicly defensive I think it's like trying to understand why am I feeling defensive right now I've had a lot of people say like men when they read this book it's like I felt very defensive reading this book and it's like good good feel defensive and now what are you doing with that emotion how are you letting defensiveness um, guide you to be a different kind of man in the world, right? So don't tune out, stay engaged, listen to the women and gender nonconforming people around you, um, and, you know, know that it's a work in progress. Like, there's the, the good man isn't a destination. You don't just, like, 
punch in and you're like, I'm here. It's, it's, it's a work in progress. And that's for all of us, right? Like the work is ongoing for all of us. So yeah, yeah. no, this, that, that, that's fantastic. Great, great advice. Lots of advice there. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a lot of things to take in and the part, especially the part about defensiveness. And I think, and the, and the bright shirt, well, of course, that's, <laughs> I'm going to make that happen. It's, it's interesting you say that. Cause I was thinking about like, how do I bring in my, your culture, my culture, yeah. into my, my clothing. And I, and I'm still trying to figure that out myself. It's, I'm not trying to peer pressure you. I, oh, I, no, get, I, totally I feel it. like it, it's like, this is a double whammy with race too, right? Where it's yeah. like, how do I do that? But yeah, yeah. I know. I take totally your time. <laughs> so you know, what's really useful. Here's another tip for sure. you is accessories. Yeah. Cause like I, like when I was trying to reclaim my culture, um, like wearing like an Indian beaded bracelet or even like I was wearing a bindi for a while as a boy like those gestures to me felt like ways to honor my culture but not in a too ostentatious way that my masculinity my masculinity was going to be like somehow in question so you yeah. might want to start off with like a col- colorful accessory a good point you know what I'm gonna, you seem I'm very be, uncomfortable right now no i'm not actually it's it's funny i was watching uh, mozart in the jungle and uh it stars gal garcia bernal and he's mexican and he brings in a lot of like mexican accessories in his clothing there we go and he, i go. saw him wearing like a belt that was a little bit more colorful and i was like there we oh, go like, where do i get that belt like that's what i want to do ebay <laughs> yeah that's what you do uh thank you so much this is fantastic thank you thanks so much I want to say a big thank you to Vivek, who is now an assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Calgary, and also was just awarded being a top 40 under 40 in Calgary by Avenue Magazine, along with one of the founders of Next Gen Men, Jake Sticka. For I'm Afraid of Men, there's not only a teacher's guide, but a song which Vivek and her band, Too Attached, recorded with another amazing Canadian artist, Peaches. You can check that all out at vivekshreya.com, so that's V-I-V-E-K-S-H-R-A-Y-A.com. I'll put it all in the show notes so you can check that out. Join us next time on Modern Manhood as we discuss masculinity and young men and how some of the research that have come in those areas have either been good or bad. We're going to discuss all around the research of masculinity and young men and see if we can find better models. To listen to all the episodes of Modern Manhood, go to modernmanhood.org or you can just look us up whatever you find your podcast. It could be Apple, Spotify, Google Play, whatever you find it, you will find Modern Manhood in there. So have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next time on Modern Manhood.